0: Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm a senior clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a practicing chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Before we get into the interview with Dr. Carlo Amendolia, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I am especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review on iTunes from Dr. Paul O., DCMPH, who says, quote, Dr. Smith, you bring insights from contemporary researchers from around the world. Being active in technique development, research, and practice, I am re-inspired by learning of developments from the motor control and neurophysiological disciplines. I am reminded of the references and research personalities my mentor, the late Joe Keating, would report and that these podcasts continue in that same spirit. Keep up the great work. Unquote. Well, thanks, Dr. Paul, for your review. I look forward to sharing your clever and flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website by making a donation or purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Carlo Amendolia. Dr. Carlo Amendolia is the director of the Spine Clinic and the Spine Stenosis Program at the Rebecca McDonald Center for Arthritis and Autoimmune Diseases at Mount Sinai Hospital. He received his MSc degree in Clinical Epidemiology and Healthcare Research and his Ph.D. in Clinical Evaluative Sciences from the University of Toronto. Dr. Amendolia is an assistant professor in the Institute of Health Policy, Management, and Evaluation, the Department of Surgery, and the Institute of Medical Sciences at the University of Toronto. In 2012, Dr. Amendolia was the recipient of the Professorship in Spine Award from the Department of Surgery in the Faculty of Medicine. In 2015, he was awarded the Chiropractor, of the Year Award from the Ontario Chiropractic Association and in 2016 the Researcher of the Year Award from the Canadian Chiropractic Association. Dr. Amandolia has been in clinical practice for over 30 years and now combines clinical practice and research in the area of non-operative treatment of mechanical, degenerative, and inflammatory spinal disorders with special interest in degenerative lumbar spinal stenosis. Dr. amandolia, it's an honor to have you on the chiropractic Science podcast. Well, pleasure to be here. Great. Well, let's go ahead and usually, I like to ask my guests uh, how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor
1: well it's it's uh, likely a intersection of a number of different things, but uh, the first thing was that I was a quite an active athlete when I was young and very prone to injuries and so Often had to seek care for those injuries, and that was the first thing. And the second one was that I grew up in a family that was very uh, non-interventionist. Rarely took medication, and seemed to try to get nature to look after things, and you know, good diet and exercise, and. And my mother uh, was, was a, I guess you could call her an early bone setter. She would uh, often manipulate my back when I was young, when I was sort of stooping forward. She would have me sitting down on the floor, and she'd be sitting in a chair with her knees up in my back, and I'd be crossing my arms over my chest, and she would grab my hands and pull backwards <laughs> until I get a, an audible release down my spine, and she says, oh, that's good. Now you'll be straighter. And so that's the kind of family I grew up in, and, and combining with uh with the injuries I had, I sought chiropractic care and it sort of aligned with my philosophy of real low intervention and let nature take its course. And, I, and then I got interested and then decided that's where I want to go in terms of career.
0: Yeah, very good. So have you been in practice ever since graduation from chiropractic college?
1: Yeah, yeah. I graduated 35 years and celebrated our 35th uh, Uh, graduation ceremony this past June so I've been practiced for 35 years and I've been practicing every year since since uh, graduating uh, 35 years ago even during my academic uh, endeavors I continued to practice at least one day a week while I was doing my PhD a couple times a week when I was doing my master's Uh, but other than that I've been
0: in full-time practice ever since Oh, that is terrific! If you don't mind, could you just tell us a little bit about your practice? Do you see uh, special populations, or are you a, a general practitioner chiropractor? How, how would well, you describe Well, I, I
1: run a specialty clinic at the at the hospital. Um, so I, I'm the director of the spinal stenosis program at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. So I combined uh, uh, seeing patients. So. About three days a week, uh, we see patients in the clinic. Uh, I would say 60% of them are spinal stenosis, whether it be cervical spinal stenosis or lumbar, and lumbar being the most dominant. Um, And then uh, the rest of patients coming with inflammatory back pain. I'm in a rheumatology department. Uh, And so we do see a lot of patients with rheumatological conditions, including ankylosing spondylitis and other spondylanthropodies. And I've developed um, a non-pharmacological approach to uh, to patients who have ankylosing spondylitis as well as spinal stenosis. So we have a number of patients who have those conditions. Um, And then the rest of them are mechanical neck and back pain, degenerative neck and back pain that come into the clinic. Uh, And then, uh, so uh, that's the the, the practice perspective. And then we also teach. So we have uh, chiropractic residents from the Canadian Moral Chiropractic College who come in on Mondays and they're in with me three months on their rotation. And then on Fridays, we have medical residents. These are medical doctors who are pursuing a family practice specialty and they'll spend three to four half days a week with me learning how to to examine patients with neck and back pain, how to do differential diagnosis, how to come up with a treatment plan, Um, Beyond using medication, they get to understand what chiropractors do and also non-pharmacological options for their patients but primarily how to build up some skills on evaluation, particularly examining neck and back pain. Uh, and then we do the research. So it's uh, that's what I like best about what I do. I combine uh, clinical practice with research and training, and I also do lectures at the university. Uh, but what's really nice about what I do, everything sort of dovetails. What I see in patient, in clinical practice is what we do research on, and that's what we teach uh, in terms of uh, our my teachings are really around the things that I see in clinical practice. Uh, which are the things I do
0: research on?
1: So everything sort of joins together and integrates together, and that's what makes it so so enjoyable.
0: Yeah, I I really love that model. Uh, terrific. So what what was it that got you interested in pursuing a master's and a PhD in the first place?
1: Well, back in the nineties, uh, the Canadian World Chiropractic College was in. Uh, In communication with the university, York University, which is a local university here in Toronto, with the goal of affiliation. That is to say, the the chiropractic school will move into the university uh, environment. And that was exciting, at least from my perspective. And, um, I had been in practice for about 15 years at the time. And I thought, and I had been doing some teaching at the time. And I thought it would be a great for, uh, uh, for, for a chiropractor to be teaching chiropractors and in order to be teaching in a university, you need to have, need to be credentialed, right? So I thought, well, I always like to pursue higher learning and I was teaching anyway. I thought I'd go back and get my master's degree. Wasn't thinking PhD at the time, but at least master's degree. So at least I could go back in the university setting and, and, be a, a professor to Kairos to in a university environment. The unfortunate thing is that that agreement fell through and it never really ended up happening, but I continued to have a thirst for further education. I really enjoyed my master's in clinical epidemiology, which is really a science around looking at the evidence around the things... That people do in terms of healthcare. In our in our case, it's 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 what what you know we do for back pain and neck pain, and what's the evidence supporting it, and can we do can we find things to do more good than harm, and that was the essence of my of of the area of research that I was interested in, and so I got really. Um, turned on in terms of research and learning how to evaluate uh, the evidence around uh, treatments for back and neck pain, then started to publish papers, then started collaborating with people all over the world that was interested in doing things that I was doing. And then uh, I decided that I wanted to do my PhD just to gather more credentials and gather more knowledge in the area of neck and back pain in terms of the evidence and interventions and testing and all the things that we do in clinic but may not have the evidence for it, I wanted to to, to pursue that. And so I went back and I did my PhD, um, again, trying to, to garner more, more knowledge and garner more credentials so I can continue to work in the university environment.
0: Perfect. Thanks for describing that. Now, you've published in some excellent journals, including Spine Journal, BMC Public Health, Clinical Journal of Pain. European Spine Journal, just to name a few. And today in this interview, we'll cover some of those papers, a few of them mostly focusing on your work dealing with the non-operative and chiropractic care for spinal stenosis. So what I'd like to get started with is uh, hearing from you an overview about spinal stenosis since we're gonna be talking about it quite a bit today. So if we could start out with first, what is spinal stenosis?
1: Well, spinal stenosis really is an anatomical description uh, referring to the narrowing of the spinal canals, both the central canal and the lateral recess canals. And basically, spinal stenosis is just an anatomical description without clinical information, just because there is narrowing of the canal is really meaningless. Um, neurogenic claudication, on the other hand, is the clinical syndrome caused by spinal stenosis. And that is defined as buttock pain, either unilaterally or bilaterally, and or numbness, tingling, weakness, heaviness of the legs. That gets worse with standing and walking. The more you walk and the more you stand, the more the symptoms intensify. And these symptoms traditionally... And characteristically, get better when you stoop forward or you sit down. So that there's a dynamic nature to the condition. That is to say, posture changes the symptoms that patients experience. So again, spinal stenosis. Uh, it happens primarily as due to aging, and a lot of people have spinal stenosis on imaging and have no symptoms, and that's why I caution that you know spinal stenosis is, is really an anatomical uh, uh, definition, and without clinical syndrome symptoms and knowing what the symptoms are, you really can't say anything about spinal stenosis unless you know what symptoms the patients are experiencing.
0: Got it. So if I hear you correctly, then some people with the exact same looking spinal uh, canal on MRI, for example, may have two different, completely different symptom presentations. Is that true?
1: Absolutely. In fact, um, 30% of people over the age of 55 have moderate stenosis and have no symptoms. So that's a pretty large chunk. So if you're just looking at MRI and trying to make clinical decisions on an MRI, you're going to be going down the wrong path, 30% of the cases or many or much more. So uh, it's very, very uh, dangerous to just base your treatment uh, with just looking at an MRI. You really need to have both information at hand, the patient's symptomatology and the MRI. And, uh, And oftentimes you don't even need an MRI because neurogenic claudication is a clinical diagnosis. You don't need an MRI for it. In fact, although most of my patients have MRIs in the clinic. And that's because the vast majority of patients referred to my clinic are referred by referred to my clinic by specialists, rheumatologists, spine surgeons, neurosurgeons, um, physiatrists. Uh, so these patients have already been through the, the, the diagnostic uh, uh, workup and they have MRIs. But for the most part, unless patients have red flags suggested of serious disease like a cancer or infection... Um, and patients are not having progressive neurological deficits like a drop foot or they're not having a quinine, you really don't need an MRI from a, from a non-operative treatment perspective. You don't need to have an MRI to treat these patients. Because you're really looking at these patients, whether or not they have neurogenic claudication or not. And if they do, and they don't have any underlying red flags suggested of serious pathology, then you can pursue your treatment uh, program without any worry in most cases.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. I'm really glad you mentioned that about the imaging and and that you don't need to do it all the time. It, It seems like we are too quick sometimes to to want to get the imaging and we want to.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's so, so, so classic because when I have my medical residents in on Fridays and then they're doing a workup on the patients and the patients come in with the MRI, the first thing they'll want before they actually even ask questions in doing their, the patient interview, they want to look at the MRI and I quickly take it away from them and say, you're going to look at this at the very last. Once you've done the, the history, once you've done the physical examination, then you come up with your, your diagnosis and your differential diagnosis, and then you go to the MRI. So I have my trainees look at the MRI last, not first, uh, because it will prejudice their views, and oftentimes they'll be wrong.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, one one of the um, areas, of course, that you're interested in is lumbar spinal stenosis. And you've created a boot camp program for lumbar spinal stenosis. And I first heard uh, the evidence for this at DC 2017. I was in the, the room as you were talking about this study. Um, what I'd like to do is is have you go through this boot camp program, if you will, um, what the objectives of the boot camp were, what the methods were, and then if you can go through some of the results and and what the, some of the takeaway points are. That, that would be terrific.
1: Okay, sure. So, so basically we uh we did um, a study, a case uh series, which means we looked at a, a series of patients, uh forty nine to be exact, several years ago who uh were enrolled in our boot camp program. And uh when we evaluated these patients after six weeks of their program, um there were astonishing results and there's patients outcomes and these outcomes were selected a priori we were looking at the oswestry back uh questionnaire we were looking at the spinal stenosis questionnaire which is a condition specific questionnaire we looked at leg pain and back pain we looked at patient satisfaction and what we found that in this kind of just kind of pilot study we found that that the patients were both statistically and clinically important outcomes occurred on all outcomes that we measured uh, at the end of the six weeks. So that was kind of uh, our first uh, look at uh, some evidence around the boot camp program, and then we decided that if we really wanted to get some uh, higher level evidence, that we wanted to do a randomized controlled trial on the boot camp. So that's sort of the reason why we did the clinical trial is because we had some sort of preliminary evidence that it seemed to help patients uh, in their in, in their pain, in their ability to walk, and their quality of life. So the boot camp program is a program, uh, it's a six-week program, and it's uh, the aim of the program is really to improve walking ability because walking limitation is the dominant limitation of these patients uh, who have spinal stenosis, so they, don't, they have difficulty walking. So we decided to make uh, the primary outcome being walking ability. So the program is six weeks, and it combines manual therapy, and these are specific manual therapy techniques that are addressing the multitude of issues that are impacting people's ability to walk, and I'll get, I'll get to that in, in, in a little bit more detail in a second. The second component is home-based exercises, um, and these are, again, condition-specific exercises. And then and thirdly, there are self-management strategies, so what patients can do on their own to maximize their walking ability and reduce their risk of disability. And then we use a cognitive behavioral approach, and that is to change patients' attitudes and beliefs about their pain Change their expectations around what they expect for their treatment, um, and these three, these four things combined make up the boot camp program. So, as patients come in, they get their manual therapy, and the manual therapy is aimed at improving lumbar spine mobility. It's aimed on stretching muscles that impact the alignment. Remember that I mentioned to you that neurogenic claudication is a dynamic condition. The symptoms change relative to posture. So we know that by reducing the lumbar lordosis or, or um, uh, by getting patients to improve the intersegmental flexion of the lumbar spine, that they actually increase the size of the canal and reduce symptoms. So in order for patients to do that on their own they need to improve the strength of their core muscles and particularly the, the muscles that are that are uh, the the that, that cause intersegmental flexion And they also need flexibility in the lumbar spine. So that's where the manual therapy comes in. But they also need to have flexibility in muscles that would normally cause increased lordosis, primarily the psoas muscles. Because these patients sit all day because they can't walk, they get shortening of the iliopsoas muscle and many of the other pelvic muscles. So we use techniques, manual therapy techniques to lengthen the iliopsoas muscle, bring mobility to the lumbar spine and also we do neural mobilization to improve the mobility of the of the nerve uh, of the spinal nerves that travel through the spinal canals there are techniques uh, that we use to improve spinal mobility in the lumbar spine to again to facilitate mobility of that lumbar spine facilitate mobility of the of the lumbar nerves that travel to the legs with ultimate goal to getting patients to get into a pelvic tilt position when they're walking and standing, to improve their ability to walk by improving the uh, the blood flow to the nerves because neurogenic claudication, in fact, is a neurochemic problem. There's a lack of blood flow to the nerves when patients stand and patients walk, but that blood flow can be improved by changing the lordosis of the lumbar spine. So, so the program. Over the years, came up with these series of manipulation techniques and manual therapy techniques, a series of different exercises that are aimed at the various things I just mentioned. And then also the self-management strategies. These patients can't walk, so we need to show patients how they can change that alignment when they're standing and they're walking by engaging their core muscles, by flattening the lordosis, and using that technique to walk and to stand. So the program is unique in that it's not just exercises that once or twice a day, but it's also taking those exercises that they learn to do and translating them into activities of daily living when they're shaving, when they're brushing their teeth, when they're putting their makeup on, when they're walking, when they're standing at the checkout counter. These are the times they have symptoms in their legs. And by, by, uh, by changing the alignment, by, by, by getting into a different, uh, 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 Partial alignment; that these symptoms can change
0: and decrease and improve their ability to walk and stand. Terrific. So, in in this study, then, uh, you you just described the the methods uh, very well. Um, what did you find in terms of the the results, and and how long uh, specifically were they treated like that?
1: Yeah. So. So what we did was that we randomized 104 patients. Half of them got the boot camp program. So they came in twice a a week for six weeks and got the multimodal treatment as I described, the manual therapy, the the home-based exercises, uh, the the instruction on self-management strategies, the education about uh, changing their behaviors around their pain. Um, And they got that over a period of six weeks. But they also got something else. They got a video and a workbook. The workbook uh, described all the exercises they need to do, described the education, and also outlined all the self-management strategies. And they also got a video, a DVD, that did the same thing. to sort of reinforced what they got one-on-one in the clinic in terms of exercise and self-management strategies. And they also got a pedometer And with the pedometer, they were asked to to check how far they could walk every week, once a week, and document that on on their workbook. And this provided them with some positive reinforcement on how well they were doing. And so that workbook would come with them at at each visit, and the chiropractor would document what exercises did they have to do now because the exercises would be accumulative. So they came in for the first visit, they got two exercises. The second visit, they got two more new ones that they added to the previous ones. And over the six weeks uh, program, they got a total of 18 exercises they would le- learn to do not only for the program, for the six weeks of the program, but for the rest of their lives. So that was an important component. Then that was compared to the control group, which got one visit with the chiropractor And they too got the video, the workbook, and the pedometer, but they were told to learn the program on their own. So they didn't get any manual therapy, they didn't get any one-on-one, they got no one-on-one education, but got all the exercises, all the self-management strategies in a video format, in a workbook format, and asked them to follow through on the workbook and do it on their own. So that was the control group. So then what we did, our primary outcome was the self-paced walking test. So that is a test where patients are asked to walk independently without crutches or without a walker and to walk as far as they can until they need to stop. And then we would record the distance that they can walk in that 30-minute period of time so if patients were able to walk more than 30 minutes at baseline then they were not eligible these are patients who could not walk so they have to be able to not walk for more than 30 minutes to be eligible so most so the average distance that people could walk who were, who were actually at the end of the day enrolled was around 300 meters that was the average they were able to walk so what we did is that we randomized into the true groups and then we had them come back at eight weeks Three months, six months, and 12 months. And then we reevaluated their ability to walk, as well as also we did some self report measures like the Oswestry, also the spinal stenosis questionnaire. We also assessed their leg and back pain. We also assessed the SS36, which is a series of different subscales on bodily pain, mental scores. So it's a series of there. And then we also measured a, a variety of different other outcomes like balance and falls and all of this uh, other outcomes. So we measured a series of outcomes. So the bottom line was that when we looked at uh, the outcomes at eight weeks, the patients that were uh, uh, enrolled into the boot camp program, the mean improvement in their walking ability after six weeks, so we measured their walking again at eight weeks following the completion of their program, the mean improvement was an additional 500 meters or, or half a kilometer additional walking ability after the boot camp program. That compared to the control group of an additional 200 meters, so that's quite a compelling uh, increase in their walking ability. So these patients were able to to walk an additional half a kilometer after the boot camp compared to only 200 meters with the uh, with the self-directed uh, program. But even what's more compelling uh, is that those results were sustained at six months and at 12 months. That's after the treatment was completed. So the treatment completed after six weeks and patients were told to do the program for the rest of their lives, because this is something that there's no cure for spinal stenosis that they have to learn to manage it on the rest of their lives, that we actually got behavioral change because the improvement at six months was 550 meters and at 12 months it went up to 675 meters. So the actual benefit increased over time, even though the intervention theoretically had completed at six weeks. So, we got both a compelling large magnitude of improvement, but the improvement was sustained even in the long term and so we so these results uh are were quite surprisingly positive for the boot camp program.
0: yeah, that is really terrific uh, now, just in case I missed it, uh you followed these people for up to a year time period. Was there a difference at a year between the group that got the manual therapy? And the control group uh, in the walking distance at that point.
1: Yes, yes, there was. Yeah, so there was a significant difference, both clinically and statistically, at, at all follow-up points, where the boot camp program was superior to the control group at each follow-up point: eight weeks, three months, six months, and twelve months. So, to give you an example of uh, the uh, the the increased uh, walking ability at twelve months, as I mentioned, was 600 and, 675 meters of additional uh, improvement compared to the control group of 201 meters. And so that difference was was statistically significant and clinically significant as well. We also did another measure as our primary outcome, and that is the proportion of individuals who were at least 30% improved in their walking ability. And 30% is considered the minimal clinical important difference or the important difference to patients. And so when we looked at the outcomes at eight weeks: eighty-five percent of the patients who were in the boot camp program were at least eighty, were at least thirty percent improved, and that dropped down to about seventy-five percent at twelve months, and that compares to about sixty percent uh, in the control group um, at uh, at eight weeks and at uh, at fifty percent. At twelve months, again, with the comprehensive or the boot camp program being superior, both in the proportion of individuals reaching the minimal clinical important uh, difference, um, and as well as the in the distance walked both at six weeks, sorry, both at eight weeks and twelve months wow
0: that's that's really interesting. Uh, so now I have a few questions uh, for you uh, about that. Um, first of all, with the, um, the manual therapy, uh, influencing the walking distance that much. And, and I'd like to say that I congratulate you for using that functional measure. Uh, I think that's uh really terrific cause that's, that's where it really comes home for the patient is in their daily activities. So uh, thanks right. for, so we thanks for doing do, that. We
1: wanted to include an objective measure of walking, which is lacking like in other clinical trials. And so patients can't walk. And so you need to measure their ability to walk if you're really going to uh, want to say at the end of the day that your program does help patients. And if you can help them walk, and that's what their main limitation is, is then I think you're doing a good service or great service
0: to patients. Yeah, terrific. It's where the rubber meets the road, no pun intended. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so... With that, uh, a few things. One, uh, how would you describe the manual therapy techniques that you used in the study? Like, did you use flexion distraction technique? Were you side posture adjusting? What kinds of techniques did you use?
1: Yeah, so we use all of that. I mean, the techniques by themselves are not really new to chiropractors, but when you put them all together, uh, you know, it 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 is it, sort of focuses on those techniques that are going to likely make a difference in patient's mobility in the lumbar spine. So that's, so that's, we do use flexion distraction, although it's not a necessity. So we use flexion distraction on all patients. Um, the actual manual therapy technique, we've timed it many, many times because I do workshops all over the world on the bootcamp program. And I've been timed many times. It takes me about five, five and a half minutes to do the manual therapy component of the of the program so our visits are probably are roughly around 15 minutes and of the 15 minutes about five minutes is the manual therapy and the rest is education and showing exercises um so Back to the manual therapy, so we use flexion distraction. The reason why we use that is because we're trying to improve the intersegmental flexion of the lumbar spine. At the end of the day, our theory is that if we can improve intersegmental flexion, then we can teach patients how to do, get into get their spines in a flexed position using the pelvic tilt. Their spine has to move. If the spine doesn't move, then they're not going to get the intersegmental flexion, which we do know through many, many studies, increases the size of the canals. So side posture manipulation we use, and we use sort of a um, a generalized approach trying to move and try to mobilize each of the lumbar spine segments from the L1 all the way to the sacrum. So these patients are put into flexion, they're using side, and the goal is not necessarily getting cavitation, although it happens all the time. The goal is really to introduce mobility, particularly intersegmental mobility, uh, and so flexion distraction helps you do that side posture manipulation, but it has to be done in a certain way. You cannot introduce extension when you're doing side posture manipulation, you have to introduce flexion. So the patient's knee has to be up into the chest. So there's subtleties, I mean, we say side posture manipulation, but... Uh, we're very very conscious on how that is actually uh, how that actually procedure is done because you can do side posture and you can make patients worse because you're going to introduce extension when you're doing forceful manipulation. So um, it is side posture, but you need to introduce flexion and not extension. Uh, then we use a variety of different manual therapy techniques to stretch the iliopsoas muscles to stretch the intersegmental muscles like the multifidus muscles. We stretch the piriformis muscle because the most common location for pain in these patient populations is in the buttock. And the reason for the most common location at the level of the spine is L4, L5. And the nerves that travel from L4, L5 uh, supply the piriformis muscle. And that's why that muscle goes into spasm or becomes like a hot poker in these patients. And the symptoms are actually most commonly in the in the buttock due to spasm or hypertonicity of the ileozoa Sorry, of the periformis muscle. So, techniques that we use help to stretch the, the periformis muscle, help to stretch the hip flexors and iliopsoas muscles, and then uh, there's some general uh, mobilization techniques uh, for, 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 uh, for the, for the spinal nerve. So we use neuromobilization. There's a whole science around that. And there's various techniques you can use. Um, I know Don, Don uh, Murphy uses the sitting one. I don't use the sitting one. I don't like the sitting one. I like the supine one. And patients use a strap over their leg and do neuromobilization techniques that are described in our workbook in our videos uh, and show patients how they can do this on their own, but we also do it in the clinic uh, as a manual therapy technique. So manual therapy techniques directed to the lumbar spine, manual therapy techniques, directed to the soft tissues, particularly the muscles, uh, manual therapy directed to the neural elements. Because when you do a neuromobilization, you can get up to two centimeters of movement of the, of the spinal nerves inside the canal. And that's been documented through research. And these are the techniques that we use in the clinic. And we use it all the time on all our patients with lumbar spinal stenosis who have difficulty walking.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I I really appreciate the level of detail. I think that makes it uh, explicitly clear. So thank you so much for going into that. Do you also use um, spinal traction or uh, I've heard it referred to as decompression? I'm not sure it's the appropriate term, but um, do you use those sort of techniques?
1: No, we don't use it. There's no evidence around that uh, decompression. We have a lot of patients a lot of patients ask us the question. I get serious, lots of emails from doctors and specialists in my clinic asking about decompression for spinal stenosis, and I tell them the same thing. There's no evidence to support decompression for spinal
0: stenosis. Thank you for going through that. That's great. And what about the exercises? Can you give us a, uh, I, I get the sense that you do exercises that are trying to encourage uh, lumbar intersegmental flexion. What would those look like exactly?
1: Well, they're the, they're the classic ones that we all learn to do for our patients. They're they knee to chest, knee to opposite chest, double knee to chest, and then there's a um, other exercises they do to improve it, like pelvic twist uh, activity, knee to opposite chest activity, where they're doing where they're on their backs and they're doing a variety of different uh, techniques to get intersegmental flexion. Um, uh, so so that's uh, the, sta- the, the normal ones. But what's unique about the program is that it's not just doing the exercises, but they need to they know how to how they have to do it, but also how often they got to hold it, how, what the frequency is, how many times a day they have to do it. And what's unique about our program, again, we have a workbook that outlines very, very specifically what they have to do every day, What exercises? How often? And then how every week the the exercises progress in terms of their intensity, Um, and also they're on stationary bikes. Everybody's on a stationary bike because these patients are sedentary because they can't walk, and so they so they lose strength in their legs not only because of the lack of 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 nerve supply to the muscles, but also because they're deconditioned. They can't walk, so they also gain weight because they're sitting all day and they can't walk and the their fitness overall fitness decreases so part of the program a key component is to get aerobic fitness and because when they're on a stationary bike leaning forward in a flex position they have no symptoms we use a stationary bike as part of our program So, but it's very rigid. I mean, they're in there every week. They're told exactly how often they're on it twice a day for their biking. And they start off with a very low intensity, but that's tailored to the individual's fitness level. But every week that intensity increases to a maximum of 30 minutes twice a day. And then after the six weeks, the program goes down to once a day in terms of their exercise program.
0: Okay, great. Uh, I know you have a uh, boot camp training program for chiropractors, uh, and I believe that's offered both via live seminar and online. Can you tell us about how a chiropractor can specifically, uh, get involved in and get that training from you? Sure.
1: Sure. So I do these workshops all over the world in terms of their day workshops, Um, I'm doing two in Denmark right now. Denmark, I'm going in September, doing uh, two uh, workshops in Denmark in September. I've got two workshops I'm going to be doing for the New Jersey Chiropractic Association in October. I'm doing two workshops there. uh, So you can sign up through there. Uh, We do them right across Canada uh, uh, through our Ontario Chiropractic Association. Um, You can also go on our website. Uh, There's uh, some e-learning you can do, there are are videos and workbooks on our our website, it's SpineMobility.com, SpineMobility being one word.com, the workbooks, videos, um, and e-learning is there so you can go and learn how to do it online, although it's not the best because you don't get the hands-on, where you do get that on the workshops. but, you know, we train people remotely from different parts of the world who don't have access to, to workshops. And so we try to do at least the second best to get to know where the, uh, the you know, how to do it through the, through the videos and, and how to do the exercise, through the videos, although it's, uh, it's, it's the second best, but it's better than, than not having the workshop available to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if the chiropractor wanted to register for this online or live, they could just go to SpineMobility.com and and do that?
1: SpineMobility.com. Yeah, that's right. And the other way of doing it is getting your association to contact me or my association, the Ontario Chiropractic Association, and set up a a workshop. And this is what we've been doing now. We've done them for the Zurich um, in Switzerland, they they had their annual convention uh uh, last year or two years ago and i was invited to do the workshop there that's what i'm doing for the new jersey chiropractic association i did that in in Vancouver, and then in Saint John's and Ottawa, all over on, uh, in Canada, and um, and also I just got back from Cuba. Uh, I was invited in Cuba to do a workshop there. So, uh, so I guess it's people that are interested that can get their association uh, to inquire uh, about getting a workshop at their convention or even even if they're interested, I could come down. If there's
0: not people that are interested in learning how to do the bootcamp, then I could come down and and, and train uh, the chiropractors there. Great. Well, I'll contact my state association and I will also put a link to your website uh, on the podcast too. So yeah, That'll be great. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to talk about another couple of studies if we have time. Uh, the first one is uh, from the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association, this just came out this year, and it was uh, further information about neurogenic claudication. It was about the patient perspective. Can you talk about that study a little bit?
1: Yeah, so that study was really wanting to learn more from the patient and how spinal stenosis impact their lives. So uh, oftentimes it's from the doctor's perspective, and we see lots of papers written from what they see the patient's are uh, suffering, but we we think it's best if we're going to start measuring things uh, that we think are important to patients. We need to ask patients what's important for for what's important to them. And so we did a qualitative study and interviewed uh, uh, patients both from my clinic uh, and also from Dr. Raj Ramaswam, who is a spine surgeon here in Toronto, uh, his patients. And so we had about 28 patients. Uh, combined, and we interviewed them and asked them questions about, you know, how does spinal stenosis impact your life? Um, How did you find the treatment success? Um, You know, what things are really important in terms of uh, treatments and and what are your expectations around treatment? And um, and ultimately, um, uh, you know, how is it impacting your life? And so uh, we were, Quite astonished by the results uh, because we we figured we knew that pain was likely the most dominant uh, symptom the patients experienced and we were right about that and we knew that walking was the dominant limitation because so that's what they kept telling us and so we were we were right about that but what we didn't know a lot about was how emotionally patients were impacted by the condition. And, uh, and the stories the patients were telling us were really heartbreaking. In that, you know, some of them were suicidal. In that, the fact they were mentioning that they waited all those years waiting for retirement, and so now when they got to retirement age, uh, they were looking forward to golfing twice a week, going to sh- going traveling around the world, and you know, playing with the grandchildren, going for leisurely walks and basically they couldn't even walk across the street because they had symptoms in their legs. So they became quite uh, distraught, they became frustrated because they tried all kinds of different treatments, medications and didn't, weren't getting any better and really felt their quality of life severely being impacted. And so we were, were quite taken aback about the emotional impact that this particular condition was having uh, on these patients um, and so we wrote about it and uh, so that doctors can pay attention to not only the physical elements that the condition um, presents with, but also the emotional and the psychological impact that it has. And so that's why our boot camp program, you know, the, the basic foundation is a cognitive behavioral approach where we deal with the emotional issues Using a cognitive, you don't need to be a cognitive behavioral therapist to be able to use cognitive behavioral approaches in your clinic. We use it every day, and probably not even know about it. But that's just showing empathy, showing concern, and also uh, showing positive reinforcement. And also addressing the issues of uh, uh, with the patient and showing that there is hope because our data shows that patients can improve their walking significantly. That patients can reduce their pain. Our pain in our boot camp program was reduced by 2.8 points on a scale of zero to ten. That is highly clinically significant, and that was maintained at 12 months. So we do tell them your pain can come down. That you can. 85 percent of our patients are at least 30 percent improved at eight weeks and the vast majority of them almost 3 quarters of them are maintained at 12 months so there's the hope you know for patients so so and then also mitigating expectations is really key to helping them reduce anxiety where you don't tell the patient that you're going to eliminate their pain but you tell them that your pain will come down and then we're going to focus on their function, so their anxiety comes down, um, and their hope goes up, and they feel 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 better about themselves. So, so what that study taught us was that you need to address the emotional component, and your interventions have to address it as well as uh, not only the physical, but also the uh, the emotional and psychosocial. And that's what we try to do with our boot camp approach: is to address those other issues that are often not addressed. And then also in our in our outcomes, we also address them as well because we start measuring the th- things like depression. We measure things like anxiety levels, because these things matter to patients and you need to be able to, and you should be measuring them not only in the clinic, but also in research.
0: Yeah, that's that's those are excellent points. Now uh, if you're giving advice to a chiropractor as to what to measure for these uh, psychological uh, or psychosocial variables, is there an efficient way to do that? Do you just get it from the history and ask certain questions or do you have some questionnaires that you particularly like or, yeah. or certain, or certain so I questions? Yeah. Think-
1: yeah, so so there are what we call yellow flags, and uh, they're similar to the 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 questions you ask with the back the start back tool. I don't know if your audience is familiar with that, but it's a it's a tool that was um, uh, developed at Keele University in the UK, and it was basically a tool that would help to stratify patients from low risk medium and high risk for for ongoing disability and patients with high disability are usually patients who have um, um high psychosocial barriers to recovery and these are usually you know uh pain avoidance behaviors so patients who have stenosis stenosis do display pain avoidance behavior why because they don't want to feel pain when they walk and they will avoid walking because they know when they walk they feel pain and they often associate pain with harm and so patients will not walk even with a little bit of pain, thinking that they're causing their problem to become worse. So, so you get all that in the history. Now you can use a formalized uh, questionnaire like the StartBack tool, but I think experienced clinicians can easily detect patients who are uh, who are distraught about their condition, who have depressed moods, who display the yellow flags like like, um, pain avoidance behavior, like focusing on pain and not focusing on function patients who are sort of, um, have an exaggerated kind of display with their pain. Uh, these patients tend to be hyperalgesic because a lot of them are on opioids, which make them hyperalgesic because long-term use of opioids become, but these patients oftentimes display a very, uh um, Hyperalgesic phenomena, where patients um, have more pain when you examine them than 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 other patients have, um, and their reaction to the pain oftentimes um, is uh, is is not exaggerated, but uh, is more more prominent. Uh, so these are the kinds of yellow flags that are we that we see when we do the history, uh, and those are the ones you need to look out for.
0: Okay, very well said. Thank you so much for that. Uh, the last paper I'd like to uh, to briefly talk about is one that you did uh, involving healthy and productive workers, and this was using intervention mapping to design workplace health promotion and wellness program to improve presenteeism. And this came from BMC Public Health 2016. I wonder if you could guide us through that study.
1: Sure, that was a study uh, with... Uh, the research question was that can we improve the health of workers uh, uh, because really what we've been finding due to the aging population that presenteeism is on the rise so what is presenteeism? presenteeism refers to the working wounded meaning that people are at work but they're not working to their potential because they have uh, a health condition and the most common could be back pain which is the most common and the other one is is mental health like depression these are the most common in fact depression now is now higher than musculoskeletal pain as the cause of presenteeism so people are at work but they suffer from depression and anxiety and so they're not functioning to their capability and their production goes down in fact the cost of presenteeism far exceeds the cost of absenteeism uh, in the workplace so people can be off work and but 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 companies lose more money uh, from people who are at work and not being productive, uh, more than the people that are off work and not even at the workplace. So that's how costly it is. So, so, so. Companies are really concerned about that because what they're finding is their, their patients are aging and they have more, and when you age, you have more and more health conditions and each of those health conditions can impact their productivity at the workplace. So large companies, particularly large companies who have the dollars to be able to spend, are looking to implement health promotion programs in their workplace to reduce presenteeism. In other words, get patients being healthier at the workplace so they can produce. So our job for this study was to go into our workplace and we went to this uh, very large insurance company um, and to assist them on improving their health and wellness program uh, using a technique called intervention mapping. And intervention mapping has been around for a long time and it's a technique that's been used primarily in the uh, public health arena. For example, helping uh, you know improving nutrition in schools, uh, reducing uh, smoking uh, uh, in the workplace, uh, you know. uh, So these kind of um, health, public health issues uh, at a community level is where it's where it's um, it's it's a usually done for community interventions and so the workplace is like a community so we felt that using this kind of technique would be appropriate and it's basically a technique where we gather all the stakeholders involved in presenteeism and stakeholders refer to the to the actual individual worker his supervisor uh you know the the president of the company the nurse everyone who's involved who potentially can impact Presenteeism uh, is, is considered a stakeholder, and so there's a technique in intervention mapping where you you, you design a program uh, with the assistance of stakeholders, and so you get stakeholders who come around a table and discuss what are the barriers to presenteeism, what are the factors which are the, what are the individuals impact. And then you draw. You, you start drawing these maps where you you draw things that will help presenteeism and look at barriers. And then you go to the literature and the science to see how you can how you can overcome these barriers. And then you train individuals uh, how to overcome these barriers. Uh, the most classic uh, uh, would be culture in terms of being a barrier. And culture refers to the uh, the culture in a workplace. Is it a positive culture? Is it a negative culture? Do people like to go to work? Do people not like to go to work because they don't like the uh, you know the the amount of stress that they got that no one they don't get acknowledged for their work uh, they don't feel their work is being uh, important and that comes back to culture and so culture for example comes from the top down so so in part of the intervention mapping you would identify that as being a barrier to getting people wanting to come to work and and be productive and follow through on the recommendations of their healthcare provider on exercise on lifestyle management oftentimes there's barriers for people to do those things and and then we feel that the people at the top have to be examples and demonstrate examples on on healthy lifestyle on, on eating properly you have to have proper nutrition in the workplace you can't have you know uh poor healthy habits at the cafeteria. So management has to come on board, not only to show as an example, but also change the culture in the company. So patients and so, sorry, workers will feel that, uh, that what they're doing, uh, is going to be acknowledged and that they're also doing things for themselves, but they want to do it because they want to help the company as opposed to, uh, not just going there for a nine-to-five job and going home and not concerned about anything uh, uh, to help the company in terms of improving their profits. So it's a a really uh, complex kind of intervention, but it's one that we use that was shown to be quite effective in coming up with a a wellness program that could be uh, helping uh, patients make healthier decisions and ultimately being healthier at the workplace.
0: Yeah, terrific. Uh, just out of curiosity, how long did the did the mapping and the intervention process last?
1: Well, it took uh, a couple of years because um, it was basically brainstorming meetings with the stakeholders. And when you're dealing with a company who's trying to make profits and you're there trying to uh, develop a program you know trying to coordinate meetings uh we had meetings twice a month for 2 years and there were so many conflicts with scheduling that it sort of got every meeting got delayed and then got canceled and so it was because i guess you know in these these workers had um uh activities that they were responsible for getting done and and when they came to our meetings you know that sort of interrupted the kind of work that they had to do even though the company was supportive of what we were doing it was just trying to coordinate meetings and uh, that was the challenge that intervention mapping is great but it takes a long time to actually go through the process and it's quite tedious but uh, you know that's what we decided to do and retrospectively i mean it took forever to get done but uh, there are not very many other techniques that. That are are better, even though it's a long technique, it is an effective way of getting the job done.
0: Yeah, for sure. It seems like a thorough way to address the issues as well, not just a temporary quick fix. Uh, So if you're going to change people's health, it can take a while, right?
1: Yeah, because you got to change behaviors. It all It all it comes down to changing behaviors, whether it's the boot camp program where you're changing behaviors for patients to do exercises and learn what they need to do for the rest of their lives. Or it's changing behaviors in terms of diet, exercise, uh, because that's, you know, our most health conditions are, are you know, ill health is due to lifestyle choices that you make, whether it be diet or not exercising. Uh, some of it has to do with genetics, so we all know that, but a lot, most of it has to do with environmental and choices that we make. So, it's really changing those, and those are not, the most difficult thing is, is to change behaviors, uh, but, um, understanding the barriers and facilitators to behavioral change is the first step to getting getting things to change in the behavior and the intervention mapping helped to sort of systematically look at facilitators looks at barriers and finding solutions to overcome them and so that was that was the goal uh the ultimate goal but it's a tedious way of doing it but Really, when you have so many stakeholders and so many health conditions, because we're not looking at just one health condition, we're looking at the, the gamut of health conditions, musculoskeletal, mental health, the, the flu, uh, you know, diabetes, uh, so the whole gamut of different health conditions that impact presenteeism. So it was very tedious, uh, so uh, so that's why it took so long.
0: Yeah, well, that's awesome. I uh, really enjoyed hearing about the process of it. Terrific. Uh, Now, a goal of the podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who wish to become scientists?
1: I think it really comes down to passion, and I say that often because I have a lot of students who come up to me and say they want to do what I do. And uh, because to become an academic and be a scientist – First of all, uh, you know there's a lot of education that's required. So you you know two and a half years for for a for a master's, and additional five to six years as a PhD. So that's a lot of years, and there's always barriers and obstacles along the way. And the thing that gets you over these obstacles is the passion. You know the passion that you like doing what you're doing, and uh, that gets you over them. Uh, So I think one has to have the passion. Uh, to to pursue a research career and, and a scientific career, and then the other uh, the other advice. is is to sort of hone in on something that really turns you on. Uh, For me, spinal stenosis was something that, you know, my dad had spinal stenosis. I've been in practice for a long time. I saw my patients who were in their middle uh, years and all of a sudden they became old and they couldn't walk. And so I was really intrigued about how that occurred and why that happened and what is it's going on. And I immersed myself in that condition and uh and I read everything possible and then I started doing research and I started publishing and now I'm the so-called expert in non-operative treatment for spinal stenosis so having the passion having the interest and then finding an area where you are really intrigued by and really sort of um you know with me I I slept and Everything I did was around. I always would think about well, how can I help these patients? What is it about that condition? Uh, so I was always asking questions and finding, trying to find the answers. And I was thinking about it night, day, night and day. So that's the other aspect, the passion, but also finding an area where, where there's a niche somewhere where. Nobody knows how to treat that patient, or the evidence is quite quite sparse, and there's really not a lot of information. And then you go in there, and you're the one that brings that information to life, and get the information out there to people who can help help others. So that's the way I did it, and that's the way I would recommend others do it because it worked
0: for me. Perfect, perfect. Well, uh, you can really tell that uh, your passion is coming through, and and I just appreciate you coming on. interview today and spending this time with us and and educating uh, all of us out here that are going to be listening to the podcast. So thanks again, and I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this great interview with Dr. Carlo Amendolia. I hope you've learned as much as I have about lumbar spinal stenosis and much more. Stay tuned for more episodes If you have any suggestions or comments about the show, please let me know.